Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And we are delighted to have back on again, Dr. Robert Lustig, who uh, formerly is a, not only an attorney, but a pediatric endocrinologist over at the University of California in San Francisco, I believe. And he's written a new book called Metabolical. Sounds like an odd term, but it's a confluence of two words, metabolic and diabolical. And it's a perfect title for this book because it goes really deep uh, into the details of what's happened to the, our food supply and how it's damaged our metabolic health. And this has been a true labor of love for him. And it's so obvious because it's such a well-written book. And I'm just so excited to have him on again and to, and to discuss the details of this. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Well, thanks very much for having me, Dr. Mercola. Just one uh, uh, correction. I am not an attorney. I just play one on TV. Just okay, you have a law. De- I, th- I thought you had a law degree. I do. I have. I have a, a master's in public health law. Okay. Uh, I cannot sue, but I can talk to people who can. Okay. <laughs> it's an effective tool, and you know, there. I know someone who is an attorney, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's been very, very good at using the court system to uh, really protect the people. So. You know, the, I'm not a huge fan of legal system, but you certainly need for it. So, well, you know, when when legislation doesn't work, then that's when judiciary kicks in. And unfortunately, uh, politicians have been co-opted by the food industry for the last 50 years. And that's why you've seen no movement. So it's actually time for litigation to, uh, you know, try to right the ship. Yep. And fortunately, our, our system currently allows that, to, although it seems to be progressing in crazy directions that is limiting some of the freedoms that our, our, our wise forefathers uh, helped us secure. So what was the motivation to write this book? And, and I'm just curious how long it took you to write, because, you know, there's a wide range of, time, of times it takes to compile a book. Well, you know, I could argue that really uh, I started writing this book 45 years ago, (laughs) Uh, you know, as I started amassing information and knowledge in the uh, pediatric endocrine field and recognizing that obesity was, you know, the overriding issue of our time, you know, and I started practicing in 1983 and everyone was thin and they all got fat on me. So maybe it was my fault. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Take, you know, take personal but, responsibility. but in fact, I started writing this book in July of 2019 and I finished it in June of 2020. The pandemic helped because when I got sequestered in my bedroom uh, starting in March of last year, it gave me a lot of time to, you know, just sit down and uh, crank it out. So it was a, it was a one year uh, event, uh, it, it, but it was pretty intense during that time. Why I wrote it is because um, nothing else has worked. And, you know, part of the problem is this is such a complicated issue with so many different stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And this it's kind of like the Arab-Israeli conflict. You know, there are too many stakeholders and you have to find a method for making everyone happy. Uh, And until you do, you can't solve it, which, of course, is what's happened in the Middle East. So. There is a way, there is a way to actually solve this for food. There is a way that every stakeholder, whether it be the patient, the doctor, the uh, food company, the, um, uh, uh, the insurance industry, the medical profession, uh, uh, Wall Street, and um, Congress, there is a way to solve it 
but they all have to understand the same thing. They all have to be working off the same set of facts. And you see what happens when you don't work off the same set of facts. So my job was to put all of this in you know, one volume so that everyone had access to the same information, and then we can go from there. And I lay out in the book what the argument for fixing the entire food system, the entire food supply is, and how everyone can benefit from it, even the food industry. And it seems, if I could summarize the, the primary premise of your book, it boils down to two, two primary keys. One is that the medical establishment doesn't want you to know that their drugs never, ever were intended or designed to treat the foundational cause of disease. They're merely symptomatic band-aids. And the second is that the food industry doesn't want you to know is that virtually all foods are intrinsically good for you until they get processed, which is the vast majority of the foods people eat. That's pretty much it. You know, so in the, in the book, I make it very clear that um, <clears throat> big medicine, if you will, modern medicine, um, has two, two factions, if you are two, 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 uh, paradigms. One is treatment of acute disease. And for the most part, they've gotten it reasonably mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm not going to argue that, um, you know, for treatment of acute disease, they've sort of, uh, figured out. And I was part of that system for 40 years and was comfortable within it. But for chronic disease, you know, type two diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, all of which are chronic metabolic diseases, all of which are mitochondrial diseases when you come right down to it, as you know, since you've written about it, we don't have anything. We have symptomatic relief. Mm -hmm. So, we have LDL lowering agents. And if LDL were the problem, that would be fine, except LDL is not the problem. LDL is a symptom of the problem. Mm -hmm. It is a manifestation of the metabolic dysfunction. Same thing with hyperglycemia, same thing with hypertension, same thing with osteoporosis, same thing with autoimmune disease. All of these, we have symptomatic treatments. The way I you know, describe it in the book is it's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. You know, it might work today, but it's not going to solve the problem. And that's what modern medicine is throwing at people with chronic disease. And it is, of course, breaking the bank. And until we solve chronic disease, we cannot solve health, healthcare, the environment, or any of the other things that ail the planet. And as it turns out, it's because of the food. And the point I make in the, in the book is that just because they call it processed food doesn't make it food. So calling it processed food suggests that it is a subset of food. Like Michael Pollan said, you know, what he called it, you know, palatable food-like substances. Fact matter is processed food is poison. Mm -hmm. Food is medicine, but processed food is poison. And there's no medicine that we have that can undo the damage of processed food. And when you understand the molecular pathways, when you understand the transcription factors, the co-repressors, the actual mechanisms of action of these various diseases and these various drugs, you can see that in fact, we are not treating the problem. We are only band-aiding the symptom. And that's why no one gets better. That's why more money goes down the tubes. And that's why the entire uh, vortex continues its inexorable slide downward. Yes. I, I could not agree with you more. That has been my belief for decades now. And I think anyone who disagree with that is that is reprehensibly ignorant or has chosen just or to simply not study this in great detail. So I want to dive in deeply as to what the details of that book were. But I think one of the areas of your book excels in is providing historical background as actually what led to this. So if you can take us through that journey that you do so well in the book and kind of summarize it, 
in a shorter time, obviously, but because uh, it's really a great root, a book, a resource from that perspective, just to have in your library to understand how this whole pattern evolved. Well, you know, there's there's the doctors, and then there's the dietitians, and then there's the dentists, and then there's pharma, and you could make a you know ostensible case that you know they have followed the science and they have moved their fields forward uh, and, you know, to the point where they are today. What I uh, do in the book is I sort of take that apart and uh, actually look at what the issues and what the uh, pressures were on various factions uh, during the course of the early 20th century. And it turns out that it's not a very pretty picture. Turns out that doctors didn't actually learn what they were supposed to learn. Uh, and one of the reasons they didn't learn it is because Big Pharma was in charge of their curriculum. So the question is, how did Big Pharma get to where they are? Turns out it was a very you know, distinct profit-making scheme from the very beginning. And I actually talk about what happened at uh, the time of the Flexner Report. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> Abraham which Flexner- was, Which is 1910. 1910. Uh, Abraham Flexner uh, was an educator, not a doctor. His brother was a pathologist uh, slash pharmacist, Simon Flexner, who was the original uh, president of Rockefeller University, where I was for many years. Uh, turns out the Flexner report um, had a, left out a lot of stuff that was actually quite important and perhaps even did damage. Now, people talk about the Flexner report as being the um, the the uh, turning point in terms of evidence-based modern medicine, and that is true to an extent, but it also actually deep-sixed a lot of things that mattered, including nutrition. And nutrition didn't even register on the uh, on the dial. In fact, preventative medicine didn't register on the dial for the Flexner report. And one of the reasons was because John D. Rockefeller president of Standard Oil, was also in the pharma business because he was trying to sell coal tar as a treatment for a whole bunch of things. And in fact, coal tar is still used to, the, to this day. It was a, um, uh, a byproduct of uh, oil refining. And so he was looking for another way to profit from his largesse. And so he basically said, We're, we, we have to get drugs and especially coal tar, into the hands of physicians who can prescribe it. And so the only way to do that was to actually overhaul the medical system and focus on pharmacotherapy. So that was the start of Big Pharma. That's, that's not the story they want to tell, but that is in fact the case. Same thing with dentistry. So Weston Price, a famous dentist, perhaps the most famous of all dentists, knew this back in the 1920s and 30s and actually said that sugar was the primary driver of chronic uh, oral disease, whether it be periodontitis or dental caries. And uh, everything was going in that direction until 1945 with the advent of fluoride. And then promptly everything Weston Price had developed up to that point got deep sixed. And in fact, the dentists even said that, you know, who's gonna fill the seats? If we got rid of dental caries, how are we going to make money? And so, uh, you know, his work basically got forgotten. Same thing in dietetics. Turns out the, he, the, first, the founder of the uh, American Dietetic Association back in 1917 was the apprentice, not the dietitian, the apprentice of John Harvey Kellogg. Didn't even have a dietary degree. And I don't know how much you know about John Harvey Kellogg. There was a movie that was made of about him called The Road to Wellville, uh, which really uh, pretty remarkable, uh, some of the things that he believed in. Um, yeah, he yeah. basically said cornflakes were the treatment ready for constipation and masturbation. This was back in the 1890s. And uh, so uh, he was uh, very much against meat. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. And it turned out that the entire the American Dietetic Association adopted the entire Seventh Day Adventist uh, religious um, paradigm, and 
to this day, we still see it in terms of vegan diets. So people talk about vegan, vegan diets being uh, appropriate for health, and they can be, but they are not by any means exclusive. And they also talk about being important for uh, uh, environmental health to try to reduce the methane of the cows. And it turns out the cows didn't spew methane until we started giving them antibiotics because we killed off the good bacteria in their guts. And now the methanogens, they, they now have quadruple the amount of methane that they belch or fart compared to what they did in 1968 before the antibiotic craze got started. So it's not the cows, it's what we do to the cows. So the fact of the matter is this whole notion that we have to undo animal products in favor of you know, a vegan or plant-based lifestyle is really on very poor footing. You know, am I against veganism? No. Am I against you know, ketogenic diets? No. Am I against animal products? No. I'm, because all food is inherently good. On the other hand, it's what we do to the food that's not. And that's what I show in the book is that, in, in fact, when you process the fiber out of, say, a carbohydrate, out of a, an unrefined carbohydrate, that's when you actually cause the problems. When you add sugar to virtually any food, whether it be a fat or whether it be an, uh, uh, any other uh, food, for instance, a protein, um, that's when you start getting problems. So what I'm trying to do in this book is I'm trying to separate food from processed food and explaining that processed food is the problem and we will not solve healthcare until we solve processed food. Great. Well, well thanks for that concise summary and helping us understand that it, it, it's a, actually a confluence of two interventions. One, as you so eloquently described, is the Flexner Report catalyzed by Rockefeller and Carnegie, I believe. Uh, at the turn of the ninth, the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, that really created an environment that had massive conflict of interest in the in the medical in the medical profession, because most physicians, as you and I know, we went to med school, we have many colleagues, and virtually every single one of those went into the profession to do good, to help people, and to do the best they could. But they couldn't because they were propagandized and brainwashed as a result of that intervention that goes back to 1910. So okay. it, because if that didn't occur, I think these noble individuals would have figured this out and would have corrected the problem that the food industry created. So I think the bulk of the, 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 the problem isn't the doctors. The problem is that they were so cor uh, corrupted, not corrupted, but uh, influenced by the, 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 they were, drug industry. they, they were fed disinformation. Yeah, absolutely. They so were I'll, propagandized. And the fact of the matter is we can trace the propaganda back to, you know, these original uh, uh, determinations. No absolutely. So, so I, when, I want to get back to, to the, the, because the problem started before 1910. It started like in mid to late 1800s when the food processing start. And as again, I want to emphasize, this is the crux of the problem. It happened after 1850 and before 1900, somewhere in that range. It was, it was the industrial revolution. And you yeah. could see it in Britain because what was happening was that two things happened at the same time. One, you had people in sweatshops working long days and they didn't have time to actually have a meal. And so they ended up starting to have processed biscuits and those biscuits got laden with sugar because sugar was now available from you know, other British colonies like Barbados. So you could do that. So that, that undernourished them in terms of antioxidants, uh, fatty acids, et cetera, things that were important for their nutrition. And the second thing that happened was canning. And canning at that time meant lead. And so lead encephalopathy was rampant through the late last half of the uh, uh, 19th century. It has been said that Jack the Ripper basically had lead encephalopathy as an example. We first fingered lead as the problem uh, in terms of uh, the canning industry in 1892. But lead wasn't removed from gasoline until 1982. 
It was a you know, you know, you know catalyzed that. It was a, an unbelievable pioneer that hardly anyone knows about. His name is Claire Patterson. Yes. Unbelievable man. The guy is just not known at all, but he was just, oh, he was crucified at the time too. Yep. Because of the propaganda by the oil industry. Indeed. <laughs> so we, we know uh, from what happened with uh, uh, and, uh, uh, Exxon, and we know what happened with uh, Purdue Pharma, and we know what happened with, uh, you know, Brown and Williamson. We know that, you know, the uh, propaganda uh, in terms of the furthering of American industry is a tried and true method. And the way you do that is you basically um, provide disinformation to the masses at a very early age. And in terms of medicine, we get it in medical school. And, you know, when you think what you learn in medical school is sacrosanct. I don't. I never did. I remember the very first day of Cornell University Medical College, September 1st, 1976. And I remember Marty Gardy, one of the great, truly great um, clinicians and mentors in the history of modern medicine, standing up in front of the class and saying, 50% of what we teach you is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. And everyone in my class basically said, oh, okay. And, you know, said, just teach me what I need to know. And I went, wait a second, hold on. That means that I got to keep my eyes open for the rest of my life. And that is basically what I have done. I have kept my eyes open for the rest of my life. And when I started practicing you know, taking care of obese kids back in the 90s, it wasn't, you know, the, the, the data weren't following the party line. And when I started doing the research, I realized that everything I had been told was wrong. And in fact, what I'd been told in college was right. I majored in nutritional biochemistry at MIT. And then I went to medical school and they told, and they beat it out of me. And they told me, promptly forget it. This is why I said I've been writing this book for 45 years, because, you know, basically, I got propagandized. And for the first half of my career, you know, I did what they told me to, and it didn't work. So it's time to, you know, sort of expose, you know, you know, expose the, uh, the, the big lie. Yeah, I agree. And interestingly, I followed a similar journey. Uh, even though we're about the same age, I started medical school two years later. And, then, and so I had the same experience the first day of my medical education, very first day, 1978. And Ward Perrin, who has since passed, was a great clinician also, the, the president of the college, and uh, which is now Midwestern University, said, what we're going to do, most of, just as I told you, most of the stuff you're going to learn is going to be wrong five years from now and we, we don't know what it is so you're gonna have to learn it all but that what we're going to teach you is how to learn the problem is as we alluded to earlier you're, there's just such a well of a massive influence of propaganda and misinformation that even if you have that desire and you know how to learn it takes an exceptional human being and there's not there's a small percentage like you and i who kind of were able to get out of that system and realize that they're doing something wrong because if they're honest and they just question and, and evaluate what their observations are, they, they, it's hard to come to any other conclusion. But for whatever reasons, maybe it's fear of ostrac being ostracized by the community. Uh, I don't know. They most choose not to follow that path. Well, in academia, it's easy because you can't get your grants. Yeah. So, you know, and I have had my share of, you know, difficulties, you know, maintaining my funding sources over the years. The good news is I made it out the other side after 40 years and didn't get completely uh, jaded and, you know, drawn into the, uh, to the black hole. So, you know, now that I'm retired, I, you know, I can tell this story, you know, with, uh, with impunity. And Gosh. so you're, hope... you're not, you're not USCF CSF now, or well, I'm, I'm emeritus professor, you know, but okay. I've clinically retired. So no more okay. patient care. And, uh, you know, I, I still do, uh, you know, participate in grants, but you know, other people's grants, you know, I'm not writing my own. Uh, I'm, you know, I do have a research foundation of my own, the Robert H. Lustig Research Foundation that is not associated with a medical school, very specifically to maintain its objectivity, to maintain its ability to do the right thing. And my goal is to try to teach physicians the right story, not the wrong one.
Great. So I want to go back to this processed food because, as I said, I'm 100% in agreement with you. And that's that's the reason why most of us are sick and the failure to understand that and implement uh, shifts and changes in our dietary eating patterns is is li- literally the primary reason we were most of us are sick. So, but this is where we, I think we have a little bit different perspective on it. Historically, it's happened between 1850 and 1900. So what do, what is your take as the primary culprit? I mean, we know it's food processing, but there's really, there's two primary, there's three primary components of food, macro one, macro wise. So you have protein, carbs, and fats. Oh. So, so what what's your take on it? And then I'll share what, what, because it's probably what I believe too, but I've recently shifted my understanding and I think we might have been in a little disagreement and I wanted to dialogue about it. So in the book, I basically, I, I don't talk about macronutrients. I mean, I do, but I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. basically, I, I discount it as an issue right? Okay? because it's not what's in the food. Right. Macronutrients are what are in the food. It's actually what's been done to the food that matters. Yeah, right. And that's, and that's the argument that I make. And you can't learn what's been done to the food from any food label. That information is not on the label, which is one of the reasons why nobody's getting better because there's nothing to learn from the label that will actually help you. Um, what I say in the book is that there are two precepts to being healthy. Two. A food is healthy if it satisfies two criteria. Number one, protect the liver. Number two, feed the gut. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. And any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. Real food, because it has fiber, protects the liver. Real food, because it has fiber, feeds the gut. Processed food is fiberless food. And the reason it's fiberless is because that is what decreases shelf life. Things with fiber can't sit on a shelf because that's what's wrong. That's why you can't process it. That's why they have to take um, uh, wheat berries and uh, mill them and put them into, you know, 10 pound bags of, you know, uh, white flour in order to ship them. And, you know, then you bake them up elsewhere. This is what happened during the, um, the, during the depression in the Dust Bowl was the, uh, you know, we had food in the Northeast and we had a destitute population in the Southwest and you couldn't just put, you know, wheat or corn or whatever on a, on a railroad car and ship it because by the time it got to where it needed to go, it would be rancid because the nucleic acids, because the proteins are all, you know, um, uh, 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 attackable by bacteria and can go rancid. So you had to separate the things that were uh, 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 perishable from the stuff that wasn't. And so by defibertizing a grain, you basically turned it from a food into a commodity, storable food, but not necessarily one that was healthy. In fact, it was unhealthy. Um, in addition, uh, the nucleic acids it's, it were in the germ. Well, the germ got taken out and put elsewhere, uh, you know, like Kretschmer wheat germ. My mother used to feed me a teaspoon of Kretschmer wheat germ. And boy, did I hate that stuff. It tasted horrible. It was nasty. And the reason was because that's what went bad. That was the stuff that was in the wheat that went bad. So we, in an attempt to try to... Uh, uh, increase uh, 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 availability, decrease wastage, we turned our entire food supply on its head in order to create commodities rather than uh, make food available. This went on in the 1930s. Then people learned how to make money at it. And after World War II, this problem went away, but the money didn't. And so we doubled down. And then in the 1970s, we had Richard Nixon telling Earl Butts, his uh, agriculture secretary, to make food cheap because he knew that fluctuating food prices caused political unrest, and he had a whole lot of political unrest to deal with. And so Earl Butts went across the country, and he said three things, row to row, furrow to furrow, get bigger, get out. And that was the start of monoculture. 
And now, now that's why all the corn is in Iowa and all the cattle are in Kansas. And that's why we have to use nitrogen fertilizer to fertilize the corn in Iowa because the manure is in Kansas and it's making the animals sick. So we have to give them antibiotics so they don't die. So now we've got nitrogen runoff destroying our environment and antibiotics in the feed in order to keep the animals alive, but basically killing off their own bacteria and ours, and also you know, creating chronic disease and destroying the environment as well. So it's basically built into our Western food system. And we're not going to solve health. We're not going to solve healthcare. We're not going to solve chronic disease. We're not going to solve uh, the uh, uh, economics. We're not going to solve the environment until we recognize what the problem is. Yeah. So as, as I mentioned, we're in complete agreement. It's processed foods. But what I'm trying to get to is when I mentioned macronutrients, it's not necessarily the ratios of the macros that's, that's the issue. It's the bastardization or the processing of those macros. So I believe it's your contention that it's the carbohydrate refinement that's been the primary culprit. And well, that's I'm of the, that's I'm of the reason the belief that it's not. I mean, that's a, clearly a factor, but I think there's a more pernicious poison, and that is the processing of the fats. Because linoleic acid was available, as, it was, as a percentage of total calories, was about 2% of total calories in about 18, in 1850. Now it's 20 to 30%. And, I, and it's my understanding review literature that that is just a, a more, far more profound metabolic poison, even at the mitochondrial level, I'm glad to dialogue with you about that, than excess carbohydrates. I don't know that it's a metabolic poison. We can go into AGEs and ALEs. So. Oh, no, no, no. Well, you can get AGEs from anything, from yeah. any uh, unsaturated fat. You know, the only uh, right doesn't yeah. give it to you is saturated fat. And right, right. Saturated right. fat is actually way better for you than uh, a lot of stuff. So no argument there. The point is linoleic acids and omega-6 fatty acid, and right. you need omega-6s, okay? You don't make omega-6s. You do need omega-6s. We just don't need as many as we're getting. Yeah, but it's like almost physiologically impossible to be deficient if you're eating food. It's present in almost every food. In the Western diet, I totally agree. Well, in every diet. I mean, it's, it's in pretty much in everything. It's, I mean, unless you're eating 100% fruit, you're not going to get any fat. But other than that, it's in everything. Well, I mean, if you were, if you were in an Inuit and you were eating whale blubber, you might be you know, low on- There's some. There's some in whale blubber. I'm <laughs> pretty sure there is. I'm pretty sure it's in- pretty, well, it's, But it's in low concentrations. It might be half a percent. Right. So the, the point is, I totally agree with you that omega-6s are a problem. I don't argue that. And omega-6s are a double problem because number one, they're pro-inflammatory by themselves. Mm -hmm. And number two- there, they have enough uh, uh, unsaturated double bonds so that if you heat them high enough, you flip them and end up making trans fats. That's the, you know, the, the problem of all of these polyunsaturates is that they're not meant to be uh, heated beyond their smoking point. You know, I, I, I would disagree with that. I could show you some interesting studies. It's not the trans fats. Trans fats are, all, I mean, I used to believe that too, but when you look at trans fat, and there's a lot of studies that show this trans fat and compare it to the oxidized, not so much the trans, but the oxidized, or the, the, they're called oxlams, oxidized, oxidized linoleic acid metabolites. That's what causes it. And that's what causes all the ALEs, the advanced lipoxidation oxidation end products, which is even worse than AGEs. Well, uh, I, 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 again, I don't disagree with you, but the point is you have to do something to them to get them there. And the thing that does it is heating. And so a lot of these oils- Or exposure to air. Simple exposure to air will do it too. Well, okay. Heating, heating is a catalyst. It makes it worse, but just exposing it to room temperature or room air will do it. Well, the point is that cooking you know, confers its own uh, toxicity. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. You know, whether it's whether it's uh, uh, you know uh, PAHs, you know polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, you know from grilling, whether it's you know uh, as you said um, uh, advanced uh, lipidation end products. You know the point is that we have a, um, a metabolic burden of reactive oxygen species mm -hmm. that are doing damage if you can't quench them. So 
That's why we have antioxidants in our body. That's why we have glutathione. That's why we have vitamin E in our cells is to basically be the sink for those reactive oxygen species. The fact of the matter is our mitochondria are making reactive oxygen species every single minute of every single day. It is a normal byproduct of metabolism. The point is we're supposed to be able to quench them. And you can only quench them if you get the antioxidants into you. And the problem is as soon as you've taken those, um, uh, you know, the germ out of the carbohydrate, you've basically reduced your uh, antioxidant uh, consumption by uh, tenfold. So we are antioxidant deficient because of food processing, which then le um, leaves us uh, vulnerable to the ravages of reactive oxygen species from multiple sources, including our own mitochondria. So yeah. getting the food to be whole, getting the food to be what came out of the ground or animals that ate what came out of the ground is the argument. Uh, again, protect the liver, feed the gut. So fiber protects the liver, fiber feeds the gut, but also sugar poisons the liver and sugar poisons the gut. So I would say added sugar, removal of fiber is a number one. I would also say that, yes, uh, by all means, if we're increasing inflammation, we're increasing reactive oxygen species. And so, yes, omega-6s and trans fats play a major role in that as well. So, yeah, but that's all processed food. Yeah. So free radicals are not only normal, they're absolutely necessary and imperative. They're, they're biological signaling molecules. And if you indiscriminately suppress them, which is the danger that some people do with ex ex exogenous and excessive sup anti antioxidant supplements, that can be dangerous. It really can be. And you really want to get it from your food. So at one of the, I don't think it was mentioned in your book, at least I don't recall, maybe you did and I miss it. I'm sorry. But in my view, one of the most important uh, agents to suppress these oxidative re reactions that occur and sort of it serves as a sacrificial sink is a, a, a dipeptide called carnosine, which is beta beta alanine and histidine. And it, it just is amazing what it does. I mean, there's, it's so effective at neutralizing these, these AGEs and ALEs. So, and that is really only found in meat, in meat. So, you know, using that as a factoid, you could make a pretty strong argument of the dangers. I know you expressed the fact that you're neutral about it, but that is a danger. If you accept the, 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 the premise, the thesis hypothesis that um, this it's this excess oxidative stress, that's a real challenge. And if you deprive your body of an important supply of those in the form of carnosine, you're going to run into problems. Well, there, there are problems if you go extreme in either direction. You know, so if you're a vegan, you've got uh, certain deficiencies. If you're, uh, you know, uh, on a, a carnivore diet, you're going to have other deficiencies. The point is that that's one of the reasons why we mm -hmm. developed the way we did as omnivores. I'm not uh, against any given food. I'm not against any. You, you can eat healthy in it with, with any macro ratio. I would agree with you. Absolutely. It's harder in some, some choices, but it's still possible. Absolutely. And you can eat a ketogenic diet with lots of fiber. Okay. Or you and can eat one with lots of bad fat <laughs> and kill yourself prematurely. Indeed. So, you know, the point is that if you're, you know, just going to McDonald's and you're taking the bun off the, uh, uh, you know, off the hamburger and you're eating that branch chain amino acid filled hamburger uh, all by itself. And you, and you, by the way, you added the ketchup to it. You know, you're, you're not doing yourself any favors. So this is really, you know, th there are a lot of, uh, shall we say, uh, charlatans in the nutrition field. You know, they have one, one nail, uh, one hammer. So everything's a nail. And I am not like that at all. I am not espousing any given diet. Uh, there are a lot of diets that work, you know, and they can range all the way from vegan all the way to keto and everything in between, whether it be you know, Ornish or pescatarian or yeah, yeah. traditional Japanese or uh, Mediterranean or paleo or, you know, a whole, whole host of other diets, all of which work 
Some work better for one person versus another. And that's another reason why I don't get into specific mm-hmm. sure. diets. Some people, you know, actually do better with one or the other. And, you know, all you have to do is look at Christopher Gardner's or Frank Sachs's work to know that some people do better than others. But every single diet that works is real food. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. no oh. processed food in any diet that works. And right. processed food is the diet that does not work. Yeah, yeah. Period. You know, I, I always found a, it a, a really intriguing paradox that um, that many people could follow an orange type diet, really low fat, and and resolve their diabetes, and others could follow a very high fat, low carb diet, and equally resolve their diabetes. Absolutely. Said, How does that work? Oh, but, see? What what I learned, I think it. Uh, what I think it is is that they're both low linoleic acid. Well, I would say they're both low insulin diets. Right. And lin- excessive linoleic acid causes insulin resistance, except at the adipocyte where it causes insulin sensitivity, which is exactly what you don't want to have. If you can keep your insulin down, it almost doesn't matter what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Processed food makes your insulin go up for all the reasons we've been discussing. Yeah, but I think that the LA was the missing factor that I didn't understand. That there's just lowering it. Because you can, there's a whole wide variety, but if, you know, the, in a low fat diet, you're not getting a lot. And certainly if you're eating a, an unprocessed food diet, you're not going to get much, especially more with more leaning more towards animal protein. So, okay, enough of that dialogue. I want you to focus now, if you would be so kind as to what you recommend as some of the solutions, because now we've outlined the challenges that we're exposed to. So, you know, you've put some thought into this. You've been, as you said, working on it for multiple decades and, you know, you in your, you're in retirement phase now. So you've got even more time to think about this and formulate recommendations. So can you summarize those for us? So what I can say is that education cannot work. Education alone cannot work. Everyone wants education to work, and it cannot work. And the reason is because education has never solved any substance of abuse, period. Did Nancy Reagan's just say no work? We have an opioid crisis, mm-hmm. okay? The fact of the matter is you can you know, educate till the cows come home, and if there's a biochemical drive to abuse a specific substance or substances, You cannot educate past that. So this notion that we can teach people what's in their food and somehow that will be enough is basically hogwash. And there are a zillion uh, uh, examples of how that has not worked throughout history, including alcohol, including tobacco, including opioids, including um, um, uh, oil, uh, you know, uh, petroleum. The fact matter is that cannot work. Caffeine too. So we need more. We need more than just education. We need education plus implementation. And that is a completely different set of uh, 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 under, uh, uh, level of understanding. And it requires a different uh, um, societal response. So the way I, I describe it is that um, There's personal intervention, which for lack of a better word, we can call rehab, and societal intervention, which for lack of a better word, we can call laws. Rehab and laws, rehab and laws, for everything that is a uh, hedonic substance, you need both. Well, processed food is a hedonic substance. And if you don't believe me, just try being a processed food addict and taking a dose of naltrexone and see just how sick you get when you antagonize your opioids. And, and for those who don't know, naltrexone is a narcotic antagonist. So antagonist. It, it neutralizes those receptors. Right. And we actually have developed that into a, an assay for food addiction, uh, giving a dose of naltrexone and monitoring the uh, uh, subjective uh, uh, responses and the cortisol response uh, in, uh, to demonstrate the, the phenomenon of food addiction. And so um, this is work of uh, my colleague, Dr. Ashley Mason here at UCSF. So the fact matter is we need both. We need rehab. We need individual intervention, which is what, you know, I'm talking about. We need societal intervention. The problem is 
food industry doesn't want any societal intervention because this is their gravy train. So the question is, how do you do this? Well, normally we would do it through legislation. That's what we would normally do. But the fact of the matter is food industry has completely co-opted the entire uh, 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 legislative branch because 338 out of 535 congressmen take money from the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC or ALEC. Um, they, you know, and, and agriculture is their number four contributor after uh, petroleum and, uh, 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 I forget, it, some, uh, some, oh, and pharma. Mm -hmm. So they- How could we forget pharma? <laughs> well, we could forget pharma. <laughs> so the fact of the matter is the, um, the legislative uh, wheels, uh, have, you know, basically have fallen off. So what's left? Well, one thing that's left is litigation. And so there are a number of lawsuits that are proceeding forward in an attempt to try to, um, you know, uh, shall we say, make a difference in terms of this. Now, no one wants regulation from the bench, but regulation from the bench is better than no regulation at all, which is what we currently have. So that's one thing that can happen. And I'm actually a party to several uh, of these uh, 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 efforts. And, you know, this is where that, that law degree comes in. <laughs> but there's the, but the, the point is we have to ultimately restructure the entire food system so that all stakeholders benefit. And we have to demonstrate to them how they can benefit. So the question is, could they could the food industry make money selling real food? Can we show them how they can make money selling real food instead of processed food? And the answer is absolutely we can. And what I do in the book is I demonstrate how ultimately real food is good for the wallet as well as being good mm -hmm. for the planet. And I actually take people through the exercise of how much money the food industry would actually make by switching to real food mm -hmm. provided provided and this is the key you have to get rid of the subsidies mm -hmm. the subsidies are the single biggest blockade they're the single biggest uh, obstacle to being able to you know fix the food supply because that's what's making processed food cheap is the subsidies. So the Giannini Foundation at UC Berkeley, across the bay, did a, a back of envelope calculation several years ago. What would the price of food look like if we got rid of all food subsidies? And it turns out that the price of food would not change. People say oh, it would go up. No, it would, wouldn't. It would not change, except for two items. Two items would go up: sugar mm -hmm. and corn, mm -hmm. which and is most, which is where most sugars derive from. High fructose corn syrup. Yeah. So basically, that would reduce consumption of the primary, you know, toxin in our diet that's causing the most trouble. Is yeah. It's en essentially, the subsidies are a negative tax. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I'll be honest with you: we're being taxed three ways three ways. Okay. So we're being taxed with the subsidy itself, because if you're subsidizing one thing, that means you're taxing everything mm -hmm. else. You have mm -hmm. to make a book. Second, we're all paying a fee. We're paying a premium on our insurance. That's not because we're sick. It's because everyone else is sick. So employers are paying $2,750 per employee per year for obesity and metabolic disease-related health services, whether that employee is uh, sick or not. And so that uh, fee is being passed on to each employee because they have to pay it out of their premium. So even though we don't call it a tax, it is, and it's a tax you can't do anything about, irrespective of how healthy you are. So that's a second tax, even though it's called a fee or premium. And then finally, third is the soda tax or the sugar tax, you know, like we have here in San Francisco and Oakland and Alameda and, and, uh, and Albany and, and Philadelphia. That ultimately got, got passed. I know there was a lot of pushback from the sugar industry to suppress that. 
well, the, uh, so in Philadelphia, it got passed. In Chicago, they actually uh, rescinded it before it ever went into uh, effect. And it was because the uh, food, food industry and beverage industry was paying um, uh, councilmen under the table. Mm-hmm. We have the data for that too. And all of this is in the book and documented. 1,054 references. You know, so <laughs> everything, everything I say is absolutely, you know, set, you know, it's either, it's either scientific fact or it's historical truth, you know, and I, and I, you know, and I, I provide the primary resource material for all of it in the bibliography, which will live online. So everyone can access everything that is you know in the book directly so that there's no argument about disinformation it's there this is the information um so ultimately we have to demonstrate to the food industry how they can make money doing the right thing instead of doing the wrong thing because right now they are the biggest stumbling block to being able to fix the problem and they are afraid. They are scared stiff that their profits are going to go down the tubes. It should be. And, and, well, the point is that prior to processed food, prior to 1975, the annual profit margin of the uh, food industry was about 1% per year. Well, that's because the uh, average increase in population in the United States was 1% per year. In other words, they made money by selling the same amount of food per person to more people. After 1975, after the advent of processed food, their annual profit margin went to 5% per year, from one to five. And in fact, our birth rate has gone down. Mm-hmm. So they, the only way they can do that is by selling more food per person to the same number of people. Mm-hmm. And the reason they can do that is because by adding sugar, by generating hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance, which of course is killing us, they are uh, uh, interfering with leptin signaling at the level of the hypothalamus, basically telling our brain that we're starving and therefore eat more food. So basically, how did they dump all the extra food that they're making? They dumped it on us and we're eating it because our brains have gotten the disinformation of the insulin signal. So we have to turn that around. We, and the only way to do it is with real food. So that means that the food industry will stop making that money. Well, the fact is they can make more money doing the right thing, provided we get rid of the subsidies or make the subsidies for real food so that they can make money selling the right thing. So. This requires government. There's no way around it. This requires government. So we ha- so that's why this book is complete. That's why all the stakeholders, including government, you know, it's laid out for them as to what has to happen and why. And if everyone comes to the table, you know, honestly, and you know, admits to what the issue is and what the problem is, we in fact can solve it. Yeah. And, you know, there's historical precedent for that, too. We have many pioneering organic regenerative farmers uh, who participate in this process, like Gabe Brown and Will Harris, and they are making almost an order of magnitude more than their neighbors who are just doing conventional farming. So it's certainly possible. Uh, So uh, in addition to eliminating or seeking to eliminate the subsidies or shifting them to healthy foods, how do you propose that we motivate the food companies to transition to supporting healthy foods or, or, and, and increasing their profits. You know, we're, we're, there, there is no reluctance to pay someone for a, 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 yeah. a service right. or product that, is, that benefits us. We're more than willing to do that, but you got to make it available. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm not against the food industry making money. No, who is? They're entitled to make money. Yeah. Okay, this is a capitalist society. I'm not a. I'm not. A, I'm not a communist. Okay, I'm not a socialist. Okay, but you but, live in California. Well, respected. <laughs> respected. Throw that in there. I'm. I'm. But I am for make. I am against making money by killing people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's what tobacco did. That's what the opioid companies did, and ultimately, that's what the food industries do. Yeah. 
And to be honest with you, the pharma industry is kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So in the book, but still, well, in the book, I talk about a new term that I coined called immoral hazard. Mm -hmm. So you're familiar with the concept of moral hazard as a physician have to be. So for, for your audience, moral hazard is the economic version of schadenfreude. Okay. It's basically making money off the misery of others. An example would be the insurance industry. Okay. The insurance industry didn't make you get sick. But boy, oh boy, they sure are happy when you do. Okay. And because when you get sick, what do they do? They say no and they raise your rates because it's the casino model pay to play and set the rates. And so the insurance company has always been absolutely delighted when you get sick. They had no impetus to try to rein in costs because all they did was raise their rates in the process. Now, With Obamacare, and you can think whatever you want about Obamacare, about the goods or the bads, that's irrelevant. The Affordable Care Act, ACA. The Affordable Care Act, it did one thing, one thing. It capped insurance company profits at 15%. And that's still in existence. And what that means is that the insurance company now can't make money by your being sick. Mm-hmm. For the first time, they actually want you to be healthy because the healthier you are, the more profit they keep, mm-hmm. that 15% they keep. So for the first time, the insurance industry is on the same side as us too, because they, for the first time, want people to be healthy. They just don't know how. Mm-hmm. So that's moral hazard. What I'm talking about in this book is immoral hazard, where you create the industry in order to make people sick in order to profit from their suffering. And that's what tobacco did. And that's what opioids did. And that's what petroleum did. And in fact, that is what the food industry and pharma are also doing. And and in fact, it's what government does too, because they're making money off the tariffs. 56 billion go to paying, uh, you know, go, go straight to the government for tariffs for selling processed food abroad. But so that's a drop have, in the bucket when they're well, printing $10 trillion. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, but you see, they're, but they're in different buckets. Yeah, yeah. And they don't understand that the two are related. That's part of the reason for the book is to explain that those buckets are the same bucket. But they don't get that. So this is why the book is important. This is why the book is important, not just for patients and not just for doctors, and not just for dietitians, and not just for dentists, but for policymakers and for the food industry, and for the pharma industry, and for government. Okay, this book, I wrote this book for everyone to understand the same principles all at once, so that we can actually have an argument and a debate, and hopefully come to the table about the facts. Because until we do that, there will be no solving this problem. Yeah, I I think it's a brilliant uh, summary and suggestion. Uh, what practical steps do you advise and recommend the normal average person who's w- watching this or reading your book? So, uh, first, you know, what's the first step? So the first step is figure out if you're sick and don't ask your doctor because they don't know because they don't know how to figure it out. So in chapter nine, uh, which is titled assembling the clues to diagnose yourself, I actually tell people what it is they need to know some of which they can know on their own from their family history, some of which they can find out if by visiting the doctor's office, some of which require lab tests, which Mm -hmm. the doctor can order. But ultimately, are you sick or are you not? And if you're sick, how are you sick? Because ultimately, you will not be able to get better until you understand how you're sick. You have to understand the problem before you can solve it. So that's the first thing that people need to know. And so this is, in in essence, a short course in personalized medicine. Well, you know, but I get that. And I, we we've got limited time. So, you know, I've been doing that on my site for 20 years. So, but the central issue that we really don't address on the site is that what you just proposed is really addressing the fundamental cause, which is the food industry has the wrong incentives and they need to be incentivized to create healthy food. So how does the average person catalyze that transition? Indeed. So number one, 
uh, you have to uh, make big changes in how you eat and, and, and in how you even approach the grocery store. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, that, you know, most grocery stores are uh, put the loss leaders on the, uh, uh, it, it, you know, in, in the shelves and put the stuff that makes them lots of money on the end caps very specifically to try to, um, uh, you know, uh, make as much profit as they can. So you have to avoid that entire part of the grocery store. If it's on a shelf, it's basically, um, you know, uh, not even worth cattle fodder. It, you know, the real food is buried, you know, along the edges of the store. And basically what I say is if the food has a label, it's a warning label because real food doesn't have a label because real food is not processed. As soon as they process it, even if it's mechanical, that's when they have to stick a label on it. So you have to actually look to see whether or not food has a label. If it, if it has a label, then you have to see what's in it. So I teach people how to read a label. I did that in Fat Chance. I do it again in, uh, in Metabolical um, in order to be able to figure out what it is that they are eating and how, and how to figure out what it is. I am working with a company right now called Fugal, which is a food procurement service that basically can do the shopping for you based on your metabolic profile. So it links the uh, uh, patient, the doctor, the grocery store, and the insurance company. So when instead of going to the store, you basically type into the uh, uh, URL, okay, I want chicken cacciatore for dinner. It will find the recipe for chicken cacciatore that fits your metabolic profile. So if you have metabolic syndrome or gout or kidney stones, it will actually find the low purine, low, uh, 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 you know, low processed carbohydrate uh, 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 recipe. It will then examine all of the items in the store so that it will find those uh, items that make the recipe. Uh, it will then order those, have them sent to your house via Amazon Fresh or Whole Foods or whatever, or or Safeway or you know any other uh, uh, subscription service you uh, subscribe to, and it will then take the bill and charge the insurance company, because as I said, the insurance company for the first time wants you to be healthy and they don't know how, and they would rather pay one tenth the cost of your, which is your food, rather than ten times as much for your insulin or for your uh, oral hypoglycemics. So they get to keep the rest. So it's in the uh, pharma uh, industry's uh, uh, best interest. It's in the patient's best interest. It's in the doctor's best interest. And ultimately it is in the food industry's best interest too, because they get to sell the loss leaders. They get to sell the perishable stuff. Instead of 29% of all food going to waste, we'd actually eat it. So there are a lot of ways to skin this cat. And I, in the book, I demonstrate all of them in an attempt to try to get people to understand what the real problem is and how to effectuate both your own and also a societal solution that makes sense. That's great. Well, you've compiled a really brilliant resource, resource uh, and uh, largely related to all the decades you've invested in learning and understanding and coming up with a solution. So I really appreciate what you've compiled and would encourage people to pick up a copy of Metabolical. I think you'll find it very intriguing. It's hard to put down if you're really fascinated about understanding why we have a problem and what you can do to solve it with our health. So congratulations. Well, thank you. It's, uh, I will say it's, it's dense because there's a lot of science. Oh, it's not that dense. It's, <laughs> so if you like health, you're gonna like this book. Well, it, you know, ultimately, ultimately, there are enough stories to keep you going. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's enough debunking of um, disinformation to make people angry. And that's my goal is make people angry because that's when things get solved. Yeah. Well, anger is a motivation. As I've grown older, I've learned that anger has really gotten me in problems most of my life. So, I, I, you know, forgiveness is, seems to be such a more, more powerful strategy. And uh, one I'm always well, seeking to integrate. Hard to forgive the food industry for what they did. 
No, it doesn't, doesn't excuse it. It doesn't excuse it, but it doesn't, you know, because anger is a, is a pretty toxic poison, I think, emotionally, and it can sabotage your health. So, you know, we don't, we don't want to sabotage health. We want people to explode in love and peace and harmony and joy. And, you know, forgiveness is, I think, a really essential component of that, along with gratitude. But no, you've done a magnificent job. I really appreciate all the work you put into uh into helping educate people, which is, you know, intriguing that you summarize that education is not the answer. <laughs> yeah, after all, after it's commitment the, to it's not the answer, it's the start of the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's it's brilliant. I mean, it, it's really should be part of your library if you're interested in health. And I, I strongly recommend it. So I'm just delighted to connect with you again, and, and also excited to see you entered a new phase of your life. And you know, well, I'm sure we'll continue to grow and can and to catalyze and facilitate the necessary changes we need to see a transformation in our healthcare system. We're all working on in the same direction. We're all yeah, absolutely working toward that. All right. Well, you keep up the great work. <laughs>